Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're featuring the work of a team of reporters following the journey migrants take through Central America and Mexico to reach the U.S. southern border. The U.S. Border Patrol has apprehended more than 800,000 people on the nation's southern border this year, the highest level in a decade. While the U.S. government is overwhelmed detaining migrants and asylum seekers, KJZZ's Fronteras Desk is taking a closer look at the realities many face in their attempt to enter the United States. This week, Fronteras released a series called Tracing the Migrant Journey. The stories feature people migrating from around the world. Fronteras reporter Jorge Valencia begins the journey with a story about why people are leaving Honduras, the country from which the highest number of migrants come. One of the key transit points in Honduras is a city called San Pedro Sula. It's busy. People sit in traffic during rush hour. They shop in street markets and malls. It's hot and humid. Roughly 700,000 people live here. What's your name? My name is Sonia. Sonia Marita Hernandez is one of those people. She's showing me the fruit she grows in her yard. Bananas, limes, oranges. She says she put basil and coriander in the chicken soup she made today. Her vegetable garden is an important sustenance for her, her partner, and her two daughters. She stays at home, and her partner, a mechanic, only finds work once in a while. We look for work, she says, and we can't find it. There are multiple reasons why people are migrating from Honduras, and they're all connected. There's an unstable government, organized crime, and poverty. According to the World Bank, about two-thirds of Hondurans live in poverty. Even people with steady jobs struggle to pay bills. That's the case for a man named Jose, who makes t-shirts in a factory for Under Armour. He and his wife both work there and bring in about $650 per month. He's showing me his energy bill. It came in at about $100. And the water bill, another $25. He and his wife have two daughters. So those $650 they make by the end of the month, they're long gone. Teachers have been throwing tires across major highways and putting them on fire to protest what they say is the chronic underfunding of public schools. Jorge Barahona is a teacher in a high school just outside San Pedro Sula. Listen, he says. There are people who have no job, have no home, and are getting desperate. And so the entire family migrates, Barahona says. He squints and he covers his nose with his fist. He holds back tears as he says, it's painful. An entire classroom's worth of students migrated last year, he says. This exodus can be traced back to a military takeover of the government in 2009. The country has since been riddled with instability and violence. Sonia Maritza Hernandez, the woman who supplements her groceries with her vegetable garden, says she tried to migrate with her family this year. They were stopped by authorities in Mexico and kept in subhuman conditions, she says. They were deported to San Pedro Sula, where they live in a house with no running water. It might not be much, she says, but when I came home, I was the happiest woman alive. And yet Jose, the man who works at an Under Armour factory, says he will attempt to make that journey. We're talking in his living room at about 10 p.m. He looks into the darkness of the street and says that at this time, it's too dangerous to leave the house. 
Ya aquí ahorita solo toca bañarse y encender el tele a ver tele. Right now, all I can do is take a shower and watch TV, Jose says. Gang violence in this part of the city is too common, and it's easy to get caught in the crossfire. I've seen many, too many of my friends die, Jose says. He has to not be identified by full name to protect his and his family's safety. He says his brother lives in Miami and that he hopes one day soon they can join him. Reporting from San Pedro Sula, Honduras, I'm Jorge Valencia. We've heard a lot this year about the number of migrants crossing the border, many of them from Central America seeking asylum in the U.S. We asked Fronteras editor and reporter Michelle Morisco to give us the latest on the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border. He says things are fluctuating rapidly. You know, in May, we had an unprecedented number of, of people crossing the border, not looking like good old days, I suppose, of, of looking for um, uh, to evade the Border Patrol, but actually surrendering to the Border Patrol in hopes of then uh, eventually seeking asylum in the U.S. May had uh, a very large amount of people. Um, as the temperatures started heating up, um, we, we started seeing that number drop. Um, you know, CBP Acting uh, Commissioner Mark Morgan was just out uh, two days ago talking about a drop of 56% compared to May. So, down to the ground, which is why we wanted to do this series. What's happening now? People are still fleeing these countries, Honduras, El Salvador. They're coming up to the Guatemala border where it abuts uh, Mexico along the Suchiate River. Right now, the National Guard, Mexico's National Guard, is in full force along that Suchiate River. People are still coming, but now they're trying to secrete themselves out of the vision and the view of, of the National Guard. Up here on the Arizona border, we've had a drop in apprehensions in the Yuma sector. And the Yuma sector was the one that was really being just, it was a, it was a focal point for people coming up to the U.S. this past spring. Uh, right now, they, they are going through entire 8 and 10 and 12 hour shifts of not seeing anybody. The head of Customs and Border Protection says, look, the numbers are dropped. This week came out and said that he said it was because the U.S. pressured Mexico into using the Mexican National Guard on the southern border. How much, based on your reporting and the reporting that the Fronteras reporters have done, is true? And how much of that is just the normal seasonal drop? So there, there's a couple of really interesting elements of that. Um, First, you, you have people who aren't even trying to get up to the to the Mexican border with the U.S. anymore. You have people trying to seek asylum in Mexico itself. Um, that has very little to do with the enforcement efforts implemented by the Mexican government. And that has more to do with the simple fact that Mexico is an option uh, for people and Right now, there are waiting lists that are extend for months to, to be able to come into the U.S. So part of this is simply because, yeah, the U.S. stopped taking asylum seekers. As they came in, they metered them in. We have a wait list that can extend into the thousands of people in tiny towns along, along Arizona's border with Mexico, in San Luis, Rio Colorado, in Nogales, you know. So the U.S. made it hard for people to be able to legally come in and seek asylum. So to answer your question, it seems that, yes, Mexico's enforcement has had some capability there. 
but people aren't returning to their home countries in any meaningful numbers um, and giving up on this. You mentioned Yuma seeing a big drop at the same time the administration has been putting in or replacing fencing there with a new 30-foot fence, 30-foot wall, whatever you want to call it. Has that played in? It's going to play in, absolutely. Ten years ago, under, under the Obama administration, um, cross-border smuggling of narcotics, of weapons going into Mexico, of, of people, uh, was a major event. You, you remember, as I do, you know, 10 years ago, Yuma was actually set as, as an example of walls work. They stopped working. Uh, people were crossing vehicle barrier, which is only about three to four feet high. Uh, it's meant to stop cars, but it's easy to clamber over. So people were easily climbing over this uh, this past spring. All of that, their intention and is to is to replace with yeah that 30 foot high wall. It's a few inches apart. It's set six and ten feet into the ground. It has an anti-scaling panel welded onto the top, and that's going to be the real test because right now those projects are being ramrodded through along Yuma's desert. I mean, we're talking miles and miles and miles of this stuff coming in quickly. We're talking with Michel Marisco. He's an editor and reporter on the Fronteras desk. When you talk to migrants, when the other members of the Fronteras team talk to migrants, can you give us a sense of their motivations that are driving them to leave El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, and make this long trip? You hear a lot about, you know, asilo político, you know, uh, political asylum in the U.S. And, and as you as you speak with people, you, you, you get these horrific stories uh, about blackmail, extortion, trying to open a small business, being being forced to pay a gang a certain percentage of their income, um, family members turning up dead. These are all very legitimate starting points for people to start a process of asking for asylum here. But then you get the economic Asylees, and this is very different because it, it's not really talked about a lot in 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 the U.S. But there's opportunity here in the U.S. and there's very limited opportunity where they came from. This the same story as Mexico, even as recently as five years ago. Is this a way to to get those stories out to the rest of the country? I mean, yes, Fronteras is here in the Southwest, but the internet is amazing, and people all over can hear it. One of the reasons we wanted to do this was to was the conversations completely changed. You know, back back um, in 2004, people crossing with kids was a growing phenomenon. Nowadays, it's actually close to the majority of the number of family units, right? And so we wanted to clear up a lot of these misconceptions about what's happening uh, along this what we call the migrant journey, you know, uh, from Honduras to Arizona, to Yuma, to Phoenix. And, and yeah, this is a really great way to be able to give people an on the ground as it's happening sort of broadcast of, of the situation as it stands now. All right. Well, thanks for the reporting and thanks for sitting down with us. Thank you very much. A real pleasure. That was Fronteras Desk Editor Michel Morisco. This week, we're featuring the Fronteras Desk series, Tracing the Migrant Journey, which puts reporters on the path most migrants take to reach the U.S. The Border Patrol's Tucson sector stretches across most of the Arizona border. Tucson Sector Chief Roy Villarreal spoke to Arizona Public Media this week about the overwhelming number of migrants at the southern border this year. 
He says employees from the Department of Homeland Security were sent to the southern border to help care for detainees and relieve the stress on local agents. At one point, just here in Tucson, over 60% of my workforce was dedicated strictly to that, the care and, and well-being of, of detainees which meant that we had whole sections of the border that were left open and vulnerable. Earlier this week, Customs and Border Protection announced the agency has seen a 56% drop in total apprehensions on the southern border since the peak in May. A major contributing factor towards this decrease is the government of Mexico and, of course, the, uh, the Northern Triangle, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Each of these countries have contributed towards this decrease in that they've heightened their enforcement, they've heightened awareness of the dangers of crossing the border, uh, they've created programs uh, in an effort to retain people within their own countries, and in some cases, such as Mexico, they've created work programs and assistance programs for them. Villarreal says that most of the migration crisis and subsequent drop in apprehensions centered on other parts of the border the El Paso, Yuma, San Diego, and Rio Grande Valley sectors. He says the Tucson sector is an outlier, where about 30% of apprehensions were families and unaccompanied children, but the remaining 70% were single adults intent on evading arrest and more likely to have criminal records. You can hear more from Chief Villarreal on this week's episode of Arizona 360 on our sister station, PBS 6. KJZZ's Rodrigo Cervantes reported the next chapter of the story from the Guatemala-Mexico border on the Suchiate River. We asked him to paint us a picture of what the area is like and the role of the river in migration and trade between the two countries. This is one of those borders separated by a river but also with communities strongly connected. In a way, it also reminded me, for instance, uh, communities between uh, Mexico and the United States that are uh, also uh, divided by a river, but that have been connected for years by the culture, by its roots, by trade. Uh, let's remember that Guatemala and the state of Chiapas in this region of Mexico, uh, they're both like large coffee producers. They both uh, inherited the Mayan past, and they've been also connected throughout uh, decades, if not centuries, on, on trade. You mention in your story the Mexican National Guard at the southern border. What are they doing? What kinds of enforcement power do they have? Well, as far as, far as I could witness there, uh, the National Guard strategy is mainly to uh, be there and to let other people know that they're already supervising the border. There wasn't a strong, uh, let's say, security enforcement there. Here, what you could see is the National Guard just supervising the area. They are basically also uh, serving as the team that is supporting the immigration office in Mexico. So the immigration office uh, located at the river, what they're doing is that they occasionally check for the papers or the documents of people crossing the river. They want to make sure that they're like Guatemalans that have the proper documentation to come to the Mexican side. And otherwise, if there's like any problems, that's when the National Guard starts to act. But there's definitely a, a military presence that is very impactful and that's uh, making many people think twice about coming to Mexico. So are migrants redirecting around where the National Guard is? That is correct. In fact, uh, with every single source I, I spoke uh, that works with, with immigrants and, and migrant communities that are traveling to the United States, all of them say that they are just going to a different area and going through a different area of the border between uh, Mexico and Guatemala. 
they're going more on the way up north and near Belize and where there's a highly dense jungle. So this is a more dangerous area for them. There are uh, tropical diseases, there's more crime, there's less security and supervision. But, you know, people apparently are taking their chances and, and, and going wherever they can. When you talked with migrants, did policy decisions out of the U.S. capital have any impact on their thinking and their routing? I, I will tell you that uh, the first uh, very interesting effect that I saw from the American policies towards migration was uh, the cancellation of the open doors to the Cubans in the United States. So if you go to the southern border of Mexico and the border with Guatemala, you're going to see thousands of Cubans uh, arriving there. What they're doing is that they're basically flying to Nicaragua, sometimes to Ecuador. And then once they arrive to the continental area, they just walk to the border. And the reason is because they cannot go directly to Florida or to the United States as in the past. The other impact that you can see is definitely the reinforcement of the uh, migration tactics from the Mexican government. This is a result of the pressure that the Trump administration put on the Mexican government. The immigration officials are trying to control more and to regulate the flux of migrants. And definitely this is changing the entire landscape and the demographics of migrants in southern Mexico and northern Guatemala. And you mentioned there were a lot of other migrants in addition to Central Americans and Cubans, that may surprise some people. There are people from Africa and India. That is correct. So apparently what happens is that you have people who want to arrive to the United States, but it's more difficult just to get there by plane or by boat. And then they hear, they get the news that through Mexico it could be easier or they could get also uh, refugee status. So thousands of migrants are coming, for instance, from Africa. What they do is... They typically uh, go on ships all the way to Brazil, and then from Brazil, they go all the way up to the Guatemala-Mexico border. But you also have uh, people coming from Asia, particularly from India, and uh, they are also flying to South America. And once they're in South America, they just start their trek all the way up. So the demographics are also changing dramatically. Many of the Central Americans that were also migrating up north, uh, they're not participating anymore in into caravans, and some of them are just deciding to stay or to wait to see what happens with the new policies in, in the border. What's one thing you think U.S. audiences fail to understand about this migration situation? Well, I think that sometimes it is uh, simplified, right? Some people would repeatedly say, there's a right path to become an immigrant in the United States. The truth is that that path is very winding and very complicated and has a lot of loopholes that unfortunately are not providing the solution necessary for thousands of people who just dream for a better life. And that's precisely what we're witnessing with the current migration flows. All right. Well, thanks for chatting with us. Thank you very much for the invitation. That was Fronteras reporter Rodrigo Cervantes. His story and the others in the series are on our website. Now KJZZ's Kendall Blust reports from Guadalajara in central Mexico, where a growing number of asylum seekers are deciding to stay instead of continuing north to the U.S. 
A group of asylum seekers crowds into a large white van outside the FAM Cuatro Migrant Shelter in Guadalajara, Mexico. As they weave through city streets on their way to a local health center, the driver tells them to pay attention. They'll need to know this route as they settle into life in Guadalajara. For years, FAM Cuatro and other migrant shelters have provided meals, showers, and a place to rest for migrants stopping through on their way to the United States. But that's changing. A record number of asylum seekers are applying for refuge in Mexico instead of continuing north. 22-year-old Juan Carlos Fuentes from San Pedro Sula, Honduras, is one of them. He says he fled home after a gang in his neighborhood tried to recruit him. He watched his friends who didn't join started disappearing or showing up dead. Then he got a call. He says a diabolical voice told him one of his friends had been tortured, killed, and left hanging from a bridge. Fuentes' fate, the voice said, would be even worse. So he left, hoping to reach family in the United States. But in February, he asked for asylum at Mexico's southern border in Tapachula. He says getting to the U.S. is too risky right now. Nearly 50,000 asylum seekers have asked for refuge in Mexico so far this year. The overwhelming majority are from Honduras. Like many young men, Junior Morales fled gang recruitment in Honduras. He wants to reach his family in Kentucky or New York, but he's asking for asylum in Mexico because amped-up immigration enforcement here has made the journey too hard. He says he's gone days without food and seen people fall off the train migrants ride through Mexico, their limbs crushed by la bestia, the beast. Traveling through Mexico has always been difficult and dangerous, but many say it's become a nightmare since the U.S. and Mexico made a deal in June to reduce the number of Central American asylum seekers reaching the U.S. border. Father Alberto Ruiz says more and more migrants are heading back south. Migrants watch TV or play ping pong at the El Refugio migrant shelter Ruiz runs on the outskirts of Guadalajara. He says Mexico has the capacity to take in these asylum seekers, but a growing anti-immigrant mentality has made life hard for those who stay. Mario Rios is an asylum seeker from El Salvador. He says he's faced discrimination and exploitation in Guadalajara. Like most waiting for their asylum cases to be processed, he doesn't have a legal work permit. Employers take advantage of that. But for Rios, it's still better than the alternative. He says everyone knows about Trump administration policies meant to keep migrants out of the United States. He's afraid of being imprisoned in the U.S. or worse, deported back to the violence he left at home. Sitting at a wooden table at the FM Cuatro migrant shelter, Fuentes from Honduras listens to La Bestia roll by. He says he's hopeful he can build a dignified life in Mexico, but he's scared too. Estar solo. He's all alone in Mexico. That isolation makes migrants vulnerable. He can't go home, but if the opportunity came along to reunite with family in the U.S., he'd take it without hesitation. I'm Kendall Blust in Guadalajara. If you're a parent and a child seeking asylum in the U.S. and released from custody in Phoenix, there are humanitarian groups ready to help. As part of the Fronteras Desk series, Tracing the Migrant Journey, KJZZ's Brett Jaspers takes us to a shelter in Phoenix. It's a brief respite for people before they head elsewhere in the U.S. 
A white bus from the Department of Homeland Security idles in the parking lot of an old school, now a 24-7 shelter. As passengers pick up their suitcases and backpacks, staffers offer to help. The shelter has hosted over 230 people since opening in July. Staff get told late at night or early in the morning if anyone will be dropped off that day. While I was there, 24 asylum seekers arrived, parents with children only, no solo adults, no solo kids. Inside, there are long cafeteria-style tables to sit at, drink coffee, and eat something. Welcome. You are in the Welcome Center of the International Rescue Committee, says Supervisor Uriel Gonzalez. This is not a detention center. It's a space that will be your home for approximately 24 to 48 hours. The first thing people do is ask about charging the backup battery for their ankle monitors. They just got them from immigration authorities. Gonzalez tells them if it starts to vibrate, the battery is losing charge and needs to be changed. Then every family has to go through an intake process. People get lists of legal aid organizations in the cities where they'll eventually live. The shelter staff take the names for family members already living in the U.S. Those people will have to book bus or plane tickets for their loved ones. This gets people on their way as soon as possible, says the IRC's Nyla Cruz. We make the calls, we let them know that they're in Phoenix, where they have to contact to buy the tickets, whether it be through a bus station or through the airport. Here's Cruz calling a family member in North Carolina. She says it would be great if they booked the travel for today, and she offers to send them information, such as where to buy tickets, via text message. The children have toys, coloring books, and oversized soccer balls to play with. Adults can look for clothing in another room that's full of donated shirts, shoes, and hygiene products. There's a medical checkup and meals. The people there were generally relieved. Some say the journey was hard. Others say they were treated well throughout. A woman from Honduras, we're not using her name for safety reasons, fled the country with her four-year-old son after gangs pressured her to sell drugs from her fruit store. She left two teenage children back home with family. Now she sits on a red couch waiting for a friend to buy her bus tickets to Dallas. Pues me siento. I feel sad because I left my children there, and at the same time happy because I am here, that I'll be able to work to send money to them and to my family. People continuously leave for the bus station or airport as soon as their loved ones can book their travel. Most depart from the Phoenix Greyhound station. The IRC expects the summer heat to keep numbers low for now. Once the fall arrives, the IRC will have a better idea of how new immigration policies are affecting people's decisions to make the migrant journey. In Phoenix, I'm Brett Jaspers. You can find a link to all the stories from the Fronteras Desk series Tracing the Migrant Journey on our website. And that's the buzz for this week. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Andrea Kelly is the news director. And our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.